0: well good evening everyone good evening um i do hope everything is live and uh and we're going well here uh we're trying something new tonight so if you are uh if you are joining us and uh interested in seeing more about this um i would encourage you to uh to check in here um you can leave any comments or if you have uh any uh issues with with the stream here or anything like that please just put it in the chat and let me know Other than that, I am uh, going to be trying something new tonight. Obviously, you can see uh, we're going to look a little bit more uh, professional tonight, uh, working on Luther's Disputations. Um, If you are following along only in the podcast, nothing really is going to change for you, except for you're probably going to see me or actually hear me uh, refer to things that are on the screen. That's because in the YouTube live presentation, uh, I'm going to be working through an entire Um, uh, PowerPoint during all this, because there's just a lot of information that we're going to be covering, and it's probably going to be the format going forward. We'll have to see how that works. So um, hopefully everything is working. This is the first time I'm using this kind of stuff. I want to verify one thing. Yep. Okay. So audio is going through. All right. Had to do a little bit more work in the background, uh, but that's okay. Um, So let's get started in this, and hopefully uh, we are going to be doing uh, very well here. If we do end up with any hiccups or uh, or any of the issues uh, that plague those who try to do things that are new for the first time, uh, have no fear. I will record everything and post it up afterwards, but uh, we should be good. Uh, we should be good. So let's get going here. Luther's Disputations, deep dive number four. As we address some of the issues of Luther and uh, some of the uh, some of the ongoing questions uh, regarding his uh, role in the earliest years of the Reformation, uh, it really does stand out to us that we're not talking about someone who came to a realization and then never developed anything after that. That's, that's a really childish view to take uh, of any Christian, uh, and uh, but it's a really common view to take. I think that some put on. Uh, to reformers thinking that they kind of just had this come to Jesus moment and then everything went smoothly for them and uh, and they, they had all of their theology worked out. And uh, you know once they realized that this uh, wasn't the way of it, then they went to that and then it's been smooth sailing ever since. Um, that's not the case. You'll usually find people that are not used to reading about Luther uh, quoting him back and forth at each other uh, and if you start looking up the dates of their quotations, you can realize that maybe they're both actually quoting him accurately, uh, but Luther himself had disagreements among his own theology throughout the course of his life, like all of us. And so when we when we look at the earliest years of the Reformation and seeing Luther's uh, interactions and workings and thought processes and, and so forth, it's really important for us to do so because... Um, well, at the very base of it, if we make assumptions that all that Luther has ever said from 1517 onward is perfect or, or right or however the case may be, we're going to end up with a very, with a very lopsided view of him and uh, of his theology. And actually, there's much more to be learned in the, uh, in the development um, and the addressing of issues as it went forward. So we are going to be working on that this evening. Um, background issues. Any time that you are going to be dealing with uh, jumping into the Reformation, it is it is absolutely incumbent upon you to understand that there's so many moving parts. Uh, Everything from the Renaissance to theological issues to questions and issues of authority to, uh, you know, this is also during the age of exploration. This is, you know, Christopher Columbus has discovered the new world and uh, gold is pouring in and chocolate and coffee and all sorts of new things are coming into Europe. And Europe is trying to figure itself out. It's trying to wrestle with the reality of monarchies being challenged. Uh, it's trying to wrestle with the idea of challenges coming not only from monarchies to the Pope, but also from monks to the Pope. For, yeah, how do we deal with all of the questions of authority? Also, there's been a rise inside the Roman Catholic Church uh, to conciliarism, that idea that church councils can actually be over the Popes. And so there is this ongoing series of questions that the church is constantly trying to address and, and uh Sometimes it addresses it okay. Other times it it kind of steps on its own feet. And when we when we look at these uh, sections of history, it's really important and incumbent upon us to to know at least a couple of the theological backgrounds to these things. So I do want to cover them first. And two come to mind right off the bat. The first one is a man named Jan Hus. You may look at that date and go, you know, he's born 1370, he dies 1415. What what does that have to do with what we're talking about this evening? Actually, quite a bit. Uh, you'll see, because actually the lecture ends up talking about him. Jan Hus, uh, or John Huss, as some people have called him, uh, Jan Hus uh, lived in Bohemia in the Holy Roman Empire all the way out uh, towards uh, Prague. And this, this uh, whole thing that happened during his uh, lifetime uh, some call him uh, one of the pre-reformers. That's probably one of the ways to call him. But in reality, the Reformation was a very, very long uh, issue in coming. Um, but he he took up issue with Roman Catholic Church regarding a number of different things. Um, and uh, I actually did an entire lecture on him and John Wycliffe. Um, the two of them always should be lectured on hand in hand because Jan Hus was a direct um, uh, one that was affected by the teachings of John Wycliffe. Um, so if you want to go back to the episodes and see that one, it's called the pre-Reformations. Uh, you can go back and listen to that if you want the expanded story on Jan Hus. Uh, but suffice it to say that we can, we can condense his teachings down to one of the last things he wrote. And that is the treaties on the church in 1413. Um, he, Dealed, he dealt with a number of the issues uh, that were in the Roman church's structure and its life. Uh, he argued for Scripture as the supreme authority. Uh, and, quote, the Roman church is not the Catholic apostolic church, for no partial church can be the holy Catholic church. Basically playing off of the idea that the pope was only the pastor of Rome, the bishop of Rome. He was not the the bishop of the entire church. Uh, that there was not one bishop over all the other bishops. You cannot just have one city's pastor over the entirety of the church. It doesn't work that way. Uh, He argued further that faithful Christians uh, are in the churches of Antioch and Constantinople, which at that point in his life was still... Uh, a city that hadn't fallen. Um, If you know your history well, you know that the uh, fall of Constantinople is actually the real fall of Rome. That's 1453. So during his life, you still have Christians and uh, autocephalous churches in Antioch and in Constantinople. And so you having faithful Christians there in these churches leads you to the conclusion that, well, these are uh, in a schismatic relationship to Rome. So how can you claim that these Christians out here are not legitimate Christians and they, their leaders are not legitimate leaders. Jan Hus also made the argument that the church is not inerrant, uh, that the Pope is not the head of the church universal, um, that there have been many heretics and even wicked men in the papal seat throughout the years. That is an undeniable fact, by the way, one that we will actually spend, uh, probably one or two deep dives on uh, a couple of them here in the future. Uh, Another is that the Antichrist himself might come as a Pope, uh, which, you know, that's kind of one of those that gets you a little bit of trouble. Uh, Popes might be reprobates, all this kind of stuff. Along the terms with all of these things, arguing against the perennial issues of simony and the selling of church offices, um, and also the issues that surrounded the Eucharist that the people... Uh, weren't allowed uh, certain aspects to the table, um, and that uh, keeping the cup, for instance, from the laity was an absolute mistake. Um, that there is there is much more importance in the in the church going on than than some of these issues. Anyhow, so as he writes about these things, um, he is brought to the Council of Constance. Uh, just to give you a short history. And in 1415, he is declared a heretic and burned to death there during the council, even though he was given a promise of safe conduct, um, which is why a lot of people do not um, trust it when the church says, hey, we'll just come and listen to your arguments. Um, so he was burned to death in 1415. This is an important story uh, when we'll come back to later. One of the other background issues you need to know dropping into a time of the reformations like this is the constant issues of authority that are going on, not only culture wide, but theology wide and church wide, the issues of authority. Where is authority rested? Is it in the Pope? Is it in the early church? Is it in councils? Remember, the count, the Council of Constance was solving a number of different issues. One of them was the Western Schism, wherein there was upwards of three popes at the same time, and the council had to come over and figure out which one was the true pope. Uh, so then the question comes in: Is the pope in charge, or was the council in charge? Who actually has more authority? And so that kind of that kind of stuff is still floating around the air. Uh, the councils, the primacy of Rome, the pope, uh, the early church fathers. Who, what? What is the nature of authority? And so that constant issue of authority is swirling around the church. Sorry, I had to get some water there. And um, the other aspect of this is to, to fully grasp, I think, some of the, the issues that come up at Heidelberg and Leipzig that we're going to discuss tonight really are informed better to understand these things. If you understand the concepts of medieval salvation, Uh, I have covered this as well uh, in issues regarding the reformation as we walk through this, but it bears repeating the concept of salvation, the medieval mindsets, and very similar to the Roman Catholic church today uh, follows this path. First, you are born and then you experience baptismal regeneration at your baptism. And then at that point you enter what is called a state of grace. The state of grace uh, is interrupted by sin and then your confession deals with the sin and penance is there to reaffirm or excuse me, reestablish your state of grace, but it is never fully reestablished. And so there is this there's this cycle, but you can kind of see it more as a spiral Uh, this cycle of sin, confession and penance. Return to state of grace, sin, confession, repentance. Return to state of grace. But every time you return to a state of grace, it's a little bit less close to heaven than it was before. And so, after many, many, many of these cycles, many, many of these spirals further and further down, um, at one point you will die. The hope is after your last rites, after last penance, and all these things in a state of grace. And at which point you will be ushered into purgatory unless you were a saint. Uh, and in purgatory, you are, this hence the name, purged of final remaining sins. It is a purification process that is enormously painful, um, wherein you pay for the, uh, not the eternal consequences of sin, but for the, um, uh, for the, uh, goodness gracious, my words escape me, but for the um, temporal, thank you for the temporal consequences of sin. And that's what's paid off in purgatory. And some of these statements about how long that is, how short that is, how painful it is, all sorts of debates still rage around the Catholic church about this. What is agreed upon is after a certain amount of time in purgatory, you are then purged of all of these things and off to heaven you go. That is the concept of medieval salvation. It is still the main teaching of the church in Rome. Uh, to this day and that state of grace uh, wanting to be returned back to that or to dwell in that for as long as possible as often as possible uh, and to return to it as quick as possible is the reason for um, uh, constant returns to mass uh, the bloodless resacrifice of christ in the eucharistic meal um, penance being done you, you look at this and you go like, well, you know, where in the world does indulgences fit in all that, right? I get the old baptismal regeneration, state of grace, you know, um, sin, confession, penance, sin, confession, repentance uh, penance, uh, state of grace, all that kind of cycle. Where is indulgences, indulgences come in under penance there. You can do penance or you can reimburse somebody to do penance on your behalf. And indulgences were inserted into that section of penance so that uh, the average person n- uh, not having an ability to make up for their uh, many, 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 many sins, or perhaps they even have sins that they just didn't even know about or didn't confess. Um, the concept of 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 a purchased indulgence is not that you're just exchanging money for grace. That was that was a misteaching of people um uh, uh, of people that were passing around, the indulgence preachers, um, people like uh, John Tetzel. Um, and and even the Catholic Church disagreed with that. They said, this is not purchasing salvation. It is purchasing somebody else to do your penance for you. There's monks that are supported by this. There is the church that's supported by this. I'm not saying that the, the sale of indulgences was on the up and up in 1517. It certainly wasn't. But uh, that is not the... That is not the clearest way to explain these things. Um, Indulgences were purchasing somebody doing penance on your behalf. Um, And so therefore you can return to a state of grace quickly and get back to business. Um, For a lot of people, the effect of that was, it kind of felt like purchasing salvation. And for some of these indulgence preachers, they leaned into that using uh, the fears of purgatory uh, as... And it's not really even just the uh, the fears of burning in hell. It is the fears of purgatory uh, to establish you uh, fully into the 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 grief and the concern and the fear of enduring. Uh, a a lasting purging of your sins because you didn't have a couple of coins to give to the church today to even, you know, so you don't have time to, you know, offer all these Hail Marys or um, our fathers, or you don't have time to make up for this or to do that or whatever the acts of penance are. Just some coins could pay somebody to pray on your behalf or to pray, to have a monk pray on your behalf because the monastery is supported or to lay a stone for, uh, St. Peter's, which is what was being built at the time, uh, offering you time off of purgatory. That got extended by some people to establish out uh, into including even those who you are related to, uh, your, your uncle or, or your grandparents or whatever who are still in purgatory. Uh, you have the ability to purchase penance on their behalf as well. Can you ask the question? Does that mean the priests were lacking in their ability to fully restore one to a total state of grace? That is correct. Priests did not have that ability, in, uh, and they still don't. Um, priests do not have the ability to restore somebody to a full state of grace. A full state of grace is only experienced um, at the point of baptism. This is one of the reasons why some very wealthy people even put off baptism until their um, until their deathbed, which you know sounds risky um, in this concept. Um, but no, there is no ability to return back to a state of grace fully. There's always a stain. There's always something left. There's, there's always something either unconfessed or, 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 uh, something that is done that is unaware of. There's still stuff that needs to be purged away. So no, the, the priests do not have the ability to expiate that. Um, but there were certain, uh, instances where the Pope, wrote about certain sins that he could fully expiate. Uh, But as far as for a return fully to the state of grace, uh, you will actually find people in uh, this kind of theology arguing that that is a presumptuous thing to think about you, that you are in a full state of grace and ready to heaven when you die. So kind of hard for some people in uh, modern, even Protestant circles, such as my own, uh, to wrap your head around that, but it's important to grasp before we get into this. Most of us are very familiar. Good question, by the way, Ken, thank you. Most of us are very familiar with the 95 theses, uh, at least as far as for the story about them. Um, if you have not read them, I would encourage you to do so just to kind of see what they focus on and what their, what their, uh, what their issue is. A lot of the focus has to do with indulgences, Um, With the with the ability that the Pope claims versus what the the actual actions that he's taking, uh, these types of things. After the 95 Theses, though, most of us don't really know what happens until about I don't know the Diet of Worms in 1521. But we're going to be sitting here in 1518 and 1519 tonight. Um, because it's a really, really important section of uh, history as far as for Luther's thinking is concerned. So if you're interested in Luther at all, this is a really important uh, one to get a hold of. After the 95 Theses, which of course were written in Latin because they were intended to be um, academic debates, they were translated to German, and they were, uh, on top of being translated to German, they were then published uh, throughout uh the throughout the um the german territories and anywhere people would speak such uh luther also ends up writing a defense of them writing a defense of the uh the 95 theses and actually sends it to pope leo the 10th now you might be looking at that uh or excuse me he sends it to albert of mainz who then sends it to pope leo the 10th um he sends it to albert of mainz because he was assuming that albert would be on his side he was Uh, letting Prince Albert know that there were indulgence preachers going around and putting heavy burdens on his people. And he was hoping that Albert of Mainz would be uh, receptive of that uh, information. Uh, Albert was not. Um, Albert was in cahoots with the uh, papal office on some of the issues of indulgences that were going around at the time, and it was being used as a significant uh, influx of finances Uh, into both the German church and also to Rome. Albert of Mainz sends Luther's uh, uh, arguments, not only just the 95 theses, but his defense of each of them. He writes about a paragraph or two about each of the theses that is sent to Pope Leo X. And uh, I want to be um, charitable here. Pope Leo, his first and initial response is collegiate. Uh, attempts to influence Luther through uh, Prince Frederick of Saxony, uh, attempts also as well to influence him through the ranks of the Augustinian order. Obviously, Luther um, is is an Augustinian monk, and so he has higher-ups, and so the the desire to help correct his way uh, from there. Uh, Pope Leo, to his credit, was trying to stop these teachings and ideas from becoming um, as incendiary as they... Uh, proved to be at the time in Saxony and further. But Luther's ideas struck nerves everywhere they went, both in the scholastic world and in the populace, especially if they get translated into German. Uh, the The ideas and those supporting them kind of take on a life of their own. Uh, and they, they begin to spread, and you know how it goes. Anytime you say something, you get misinterpreted. Uh, people who are detractors of you are welcoming of such opportunities to misrepresent you. And uh, so this is one of the things that Luther is constantly struggling against, is trying to make uh, his case clear. But he, here's the thing. He's actively working on his case while he's trying to make it clear. And so we get we get a perspective of Luther's development of thought Uh, throughout uh, these years, uh, both in Heidelberg and in Leipzig. And it's really quite interesting. Luther's initial focus in the 95 Theses was on a symptom, as he learned, a symptom of the problem with Rome, uh, as he learned, was indulgences. The actual problem with Rome and Luther's arguments is their concept of works, justification, and ultimately of papal authority, right? He sees in scripture and in church history Uh, Inconsistencies with the claims of the papacy and its authority. But the effects of those issues show up on the ground in terms of indulgences and lack of clarity on justification. And the actual focus that Luther will eventually hone in on is that the papacy does not have the authority to define, forgive, or declare such things that it is doing. And so the real question comes up: Where is ultimate authority? And these these are some of the ideas that strike nerves everywhere. Is the ultimate authority found in Scripture? Is the ultimate authority found in the Pope? Is it found in councils, which have had to, within the last you know uh, couple centuries, fix papal problems? Where is authority given during these early years? Luther's theological developments. Um, see him pivoting from indulgences to works to justification to scripture to papal claims and eventually being met with the brick wall of papal authority. Uh, that is where he will end up having his largest struggles. Well, the University of Heidelberg invites Luther to present his ideas. Every three years they hold a uh, a meeting of doctors and of university professors and of monks Ah, uh, learned scholastic monks, especially Augustinian monks, uh, to come together at disputations. So, I mean, Luther had attended the 1512 and the 1515 ones, and uh, here at this one, though, he is invited to be one of those ones presenting uh, his his arguments, his talks, um, his theses, if you will. And as a monk of the Augustinian order, uh, Luther was already one of the group that does this, anyhow. And as also, he is taking up a residing position. Uh, in one of the universities, hence the University of Wittenberg. As he is a teacher of theology there, uh, he was making discussion of a lot of the concerns raised with his 95 Theses, which, by the way, again, we'll do a class or a deep dive on another time. But the plan is that for the University of Heidelberg to hold these disputations in April of 1518, to have five other doctors of theology from different universities around the Holy Roman Empire come and hear the matters that Luther brings up. Luther was to publish his arguments ahead of time and uh, and then present on them there. Uh, the The nature of the Heidelberg Disputation was local and regional. It was not. It was not empire wide or Christendom wide. Um, it was. It was one of these collegial discussions that was going on again still very very early on uh in in these things remember the 95 theses are posted up october 31st 1517 and the heidelberg disputation is april of the very next year so we are not talking but five and a half months later so again a local and a regional one in nature and again the as we were discussing the the issues of the ninety five theses, were uh, that indulgences was as a symptom. Um, I probably should have turned to this uh, <laughs> this slide earlier. Uh, thanks for bearing with me. It's my first time doing something like this. Um, again, that brick wall he goes to is authority. If you're wanting to, you can just pause the video and see that there. Um, where he talked through all that. Let's go to the Heidelberg Disputation, fifteen eighteen, April fifteen eighteen. Heidelberg Disputation. Again, um, as Luther had attended these in 1512 and 1515, uh, the faculty from the other universities, uh, if you are wanting their names here, actually, if you're wanting me to try to pronounce these, uh, that's going to be fun. Uh, Jodikus Brechtel, uh, Daniel Zangrenried, uh, Marcus Stoss, Peter Schabenhart, uh, oh and Lorenz Wolf. Uh, these were the five other faculty members that were going to be Uh, trying him well not trying him it was it was listening to him and answering back and debating back uh again collegial it was the whole point The, the whole faculty of uh of heidel uh of heidelberg was receptive to luther the faculty from these other universities wasn't again the the invitation was to luther to come and express all of his uh views there uh by by way of happenstance uh Another one that was present there, in addition to all of this, kind of showing how broad the, uh, the, those in attendance uh, were represented by. Uh, not only were there Augustinian monks and many other university faculty members and residents of Heidelberg, um, but notably there was the presence of a young man named Martin Busser, uh, which if you are a keen ear to church history, you will know his name, uh, probably from later on in his life as the reformer of Strasbourg. Uh, but at this point, he is just a Christian in his late 20s. And uh, as he later on was the reformer of Strasbourg, uh, about 30 years after this, Bucer had a massive influence on another young man that lived with him for a few years named John Calvin. So if you're not uh, familiar with this connection here, it's a cool connection. Uh, Martin Bucer, perhaps one of my favorite of all the reformers, um, was here. Uh, and in attendance and only about 27 years old um and and got really really excited about all the stuff he heard from Luther that day um in fact when he when he left the Heidelberg disputation afterwards he was uh the the word is ranting uh to his uh to his mentor uh Beatus um and it was uh it was actually a really cool letter to read i went back and um, I couldn't find the English translation of it, so I'm really grateful for Google Translate. Um, I, I took the Latin version of his letter and read the whole thing. It was pretty uh, pretty awesome to read that. I'd never seen that published anywhere before, but I went out, tracked it down somewhere. Um, but in all of this, uh, Martin Bucer is there. He is really excited about uh, everything that Luther was teaching, and uh, he hones in, focuses in on the first 13 theses in his writing. Uh, Martin Busser does, uh, of Luther's uh, 28 theses. Now, I don't want you to get these mixed up. Luther wrote 28 theses for Heidelberg. Uh, and his focus, his subject in a lot of them, uh, in almost all of them, are on the nature of works, on the nature of the state of man's will, on the nature of justification, of course, and the theology of glory versus the theology of the cross. Um, so we're going to work through... Uh, half of these theses, because, um, and this is why. Again, I'm talking about both these disputations together. There's w- most of our time is going to be spent here tonight working through the Heidelberg Disputation theses because it's so helpful to understand Luther's thinking on these things. Uh, we're going to spend less time, comparatively speaking, on the Leipzig Disputation just because it's so well known. Um, that we're just going to kind of cover that in more narrative format but I really want to dig in on the Heidelberg Disputation because this is this is like first six months of the uh, of the Protestant Reformation. We get to see Luther kind of at his finest um, in those early days trying to make uh, things clear. Uh, when I say finest, I don't mean his best arguments in his career. I just mean this is the best summation of what he was thinking at this point. And so it's really important for us to grasp. So let's work through these. We're going to work through 14 of them Um, I'm not going to do it overly quick. I want us to kind of grasp these, um, because it's, it really is important. So we're going to look, work through numbers one through 13, and then we're going to go to number 21 because it's my personal favorite and one of the most important ones. Uh, so let's go with this thesis. Number one, the law of God, the most salutary doctrine of life cannot advance man on his way to righteousness, but rather hinders him. Now, again, these theses are what Luther is going to be presenting to the uh, Heidelberg disputation. He's going to come and actually not only just state this, but he's going to support it with an argument, right? He's going to say what section of scripture it comes from or uh, give church fathers uh, support of this or whatever the case may be, or even on some levels philosophical. Uh, Most of the time, though, it will uh, will attempt to be grounded in scripture and the church fathers, etc., So here, thesis one, the law of God, the most salutary doctrine of life, cannot advance man on his way to righteousness, but rather hinders him. Luther quotes in support of this Romans 321, saying, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Luther here is expressing that the law of God kills uh, due to our weakness and being dead in sin. It cannot be looked to as a source of life for any man. So when we look at the law of God, do we look at it as something that we say, you know what, it says do this and I'll live, and therefore I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just you know, buckle down and do that. Luther's thinking here at this point is saying the law of God cannot advance man on his way to righteousness. The commands of the law do not have and carry with them the power to deliver to us the life that it promises should we do all things well. In fact, it has the opposite effect. It does indeed hinder us. You can see this in the terminology that Paul uses, obviously in Galatians, but also very pointedly in the book of Romans, where he expresses the nature of the law came in. And not only did sin revive and I die, but uh, even before that, the reality is that in in the commandment that promised life, it proved to be death to me, uh, no matter what I attempted um, uh, and so Luther here ex- expresses that, and he says it is in conjunction with Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 as well, that the law of God kills, uh, but the Spirit gives life. That kind of concept, right? Second thesis. He says, much less can human works, which are done over and over again with the aid of natural precepts, so to speak, lead to that end. He says, not only is the law of God not going to bring about this life, But less than that is human works. They don't lead to that end either. He says, in fact, the law has an opposite effect. It is giving us knowledge of that which is holy and unstained. And by comparison, we become more and more wicked. We not only know more and more sins, but even as Paul argues, I wouldn't have known what it was to covet unless the law said, do not covet. Right? And so he expresses this nature that just as it says in Romans chapter 3 All persons are presented as corrupt and impotent. They they neither seek God nor do they understand him because they have gone astray. And so the law of God being perfect cannot accomplish life for man. Much less can human works not being perfect lead to that end either. These are very central concepts to early Lutheran thinking. Um, Thesis number three. Although the works of man always seem attractive and good, they are nevertheless likely to be mortal sins. <laughs> this is this is a, a remarkable way to talk about these things. I will say, um, it is an, it is intentionally uh, drawing our expectations and and not delivering on our expectations. Um, when he expresses this, he's saying, "Look, human works always look good on the outside, but within they are filthy rags." And God does not judge by appearances. He says, Look, this is not a this is not a new teaching. This is look at Psalm 143 2. Psalm 143.2 2 begs the Lord, do not enter into judgment with your servant, uh, for not for no man living is righteous before you. And again, he quotes uh, Galatians 3 10 in support of this, saying, All who rely on works of the law are under the curse. And he expresses this <clears throat> not only as those coming to salvation. But even today, anyone who is relying on works of the law is under a curse. So when we look at our lives, when we look at the works of man, when we look at what good things we can do, while they can seem attractive and good, they are nevertheless, this is the second half, likely to be mortal sins. Now this is intentionally uh, twisting uh, in a very, uh, a very specific pain point in, in, the, uh, in the concept of, of the differences of sins in medieval theology. <clears throat> there was being drawn a line between what's called venial and mortal sins. Venial sins being uh, small infractions, minor things, things that you don't die for. Mortal sins being those that bring death. Luther is saying there is actually no line between these. There's no difference between these. The line between venial and mortal sins is not present in the law. All sins in the law, in Luther's mind, are mortal sins. Every one of them. From the smallest infraction to the largest murder. This has led many people uh, in Protestant circles to erroneously claim that all sins are equal. That's not true, and that's not what Luther is teaching here. They have the same judgment, and that is death, but that does not mean that they are all equal. Sins have all sorts of different aspects to them, different orders, different levels, uh, different severities, but they do all have the same outcome, and that is death, and that is what Luther is saying here. The works of man, while they seem on the outside attractive and good, are nevertheless likely to be mortal sins because, he says again, nobody actually has good works of their own. It's not that our good works can't save us. It's that our good works aren't even good. They're, in fact, likely to be mortal sins. Go look at the thesis four. He then says, by comparison, although the works of God are always unattractive and appear evil, they are nevertheless really eternal merits. This is, this is a really interesting one, and one that really does uh, turn the screws to some of those who are listening at the time. He says, look, an outward appearance of the truly righteous man is not seen in his great piety or his public good works or his long prayers. Rather, the true works of God, as he is expressing here, are unattractive to the eyes. Humility, devotion, fear of God. And he says these, not something that we accomplish, these are wrought in us. These are done in us as works of God, and they are truly eternal merits. So if you want to know, uh, at Luther is saying here, if you're wanting to know what God is doing in your life, uh, look to the things that are unattractive. Look to the look to the humble things. Look to the devotion, the quiet parts of life. Look to the fear of God and see what is there. Look to the love of the scriptures and the love of his people. That's thesis four. That the works of God are always unattractive and appear evil. It is not to say that humility appears evil. It is to say that it appears weak. It doesn't have the, the pretentiousness. It doesn't have the turned up nose. In fact, it just is satisfied with menial tasks and labor. When you meet a Christian that's afraid of serving another Christian, that is a problem. If you know a pastor who is not willing to uh, clean toilets alongside the janitor of the church, you got a problem. There's something going on. And what Luther is expressing here is uh, the true works of God are unattractive to our eyes. Humility, fear of God, devotion, these types of things. They are not the pompous, good works, blowing trumpets, giving lots of money. None of this stuff. That's not how these things are measured. Thesis five, the works of men, Luther says, are thus not mortal sins. We speak of works which are apparently good as though they were crimes. Now this one's a little bit, it takes a little bit more pulling apart. Uh, the works of men are thus not mortal sins as though they were crimes. Uh, crimes, he says uh, in his definition here, are those which are easy to define on the outside. Things like adultery, murder, slander, and theft, right? Uh, things which are apparently uh, criminal um and and people were trying to say those are the things that really do uh border on mortal sins. Mortal sins in Luther's thinking here are those which appear outwardly good but prove to be bad fruit from a bad tree. Luther would be far more condemnatory of somebody for being a pompous jerk uh in in wearing um uh, all sorts of robes and things like this, but he just exudes a pride that. Uh, that cannot even be uh, quantifiable. Um, destroys people around them. Uh, these types of things. And he says, look, uh, the works of men are thus not mortal sins as though they were crimes. In other words, uh, everyone is looking at these things on the outside and going, I'm so good because I haven't done adultery or murder or slander or theft. But inside are ravenous wolves, as, as the scripture says, and Luther will bring this out. He says, it's, it's really the mortal sins of the ones that appear outwardly good. But proved to be bad fruit from a bad tree. It's kind of like as James says: Can uh, can a a bad tree bring forth good fruit? Um, or can a can a salt uh, what was it? Can a can a fresh water well bring forth salty water? It doesn't it doesn't work that way. Um, like comes from like, and so what comes out uh, of the tree betrays the root. What comes out of the mouth betrays the heart. Thesis six, the works of the righteous, um, the righteous of God, that is, uh, we speak of those which he does things, right? So the good works, the works of the righteous, uh, are of God and are thus not merits as though they were sinless. Right? Uh, so this, this concept here is that, um, that some were saying that the righteous man does indeed sin, but not when he does good works. Now, Luther is going to answer this right back and says, no, th- that's not correct at all. He argues instead that even the work of God done through his people cannot merit a thing. Even our humility cannot merit something, for they are still done through weak and sinful people. He actually, um, in in unlike format for him, he actually compares this to a a highly skilled metal worker. Right. He he compares the work to a work of a metal worker. Right. Who is skillful and good. Um uh, God is the uh, is the metal worker in this metaphor. Um, he is holding in his hand a rusty and jagged saw and though though the metal worker, again God in this metaphor is good, the work excuse me the work that is produced is by appearance bad. it's jagged and with ugly gashes. So it is Luther says when God works through us. And so when we reread this thesis that the works of the righteous, Uh, of God, meaning the righteous people that belong to God, their works are not meritorious as if they were sinless. In other words, Christian, as you're doing good works, you are not earning a space higher in heaven. You are not earning uh, justification. You are not earning um, uh, penance. Your works are not sinless, even if they're of God. That's thesis six. Thesis seven. The works of the righteous, he says, would be mortal sins if they would not be feared as mortal sins by the righteous themselves out of pious fear of God. This one requires like multiple levels of thinking. So stick with me on this one, right? He is looking at this and saying, okay, you're a righteous person. You're you're a Christian, right? The works of the righteous, uh, all of their works would be mortal sins if they would not fear them as mortal sins by the righteous themselves out of pious fear of God. So let's see this connection because it's a little convoluted, right? He's saying it is idolatrous to enjoy oneself in one's works, to look at your life and go, look at all these marvelous things that God is doing in me, right? As he he expresses, Luther says here, he who is self-confident is not fearing God and acts in this manner. He says, instead, the fear of the Lord teaches us to put no confidence in our works, pleasing ourselves only with God and not ourselves. The fear of the Lord teaches us to look for satisfaction in God, to look for that confidence in God, not in our own selves. He says, additionally, the works of the righteous are only so through humble confession. Right? Reread this thesis here. The works of the righteous would be mortal sins if they would not be feared as mortal sins by the righteous themselves out of pious fear of God. So in other words, if you want your sins, excuse me, if you want your good works, righteous people, uh, to not be mortal sins, then fear God and put no confidence in your good works. Fear God. He says, furthermore, the Lord's Prayer teaches us this attitude, doesn't it? That the works of the righteous are only so through humble confession. The Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray, forgive our trespasses. He says, this is the prayer of all the saints. That they're praying not for one sin here or there or a couple of sins, but for their entire life of works. As made clear that they are mortal sins in the following um, passage, following the prayer there in the Sermon on the Mount, that if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive yours. Luther argues that the only way that the works of the righteous are uh, not mortal sins is through humble confession. That all my works are sinful still. And not because God is not working in me good things, but that God through me works and that work comes out not good, even though it is still leading to good ends but only by the grace of God. It is not because of any lack in God or any lack in his ability that we are uh, not delivering on these things. But it's the same thing with the law. The law is good and righteous and holy, but I'm not. And he says, and Luther says the same thing for all of the works of the Christian life. The works that God is working in us are good and righteous and holy, but we are weak. And so we must fear the Lord. And confess our sins. Thesis number eight: By so much more are the works of man mortal sins when they are done without fear and in an unadulterated evil self-security. This is this is just the next step of uh, of logical reason that the works of man um, are mortal sins, especially so when they are done without fear and in an unadulterated evil self-security. Th- this Luther would point out the highest. Most sinful person is the one who is so secure in himself that all of his works are just fine. In fact, you will find uh, even more hypocrisy with this with regards to the concept of of somebody who uh, they'll confess this sin or that, but then they'll say the rest of my life is good. Uh, God is doing marvelous things through my life and, and I only just, well, yeah, sure. I have this sin or that, but, uh, but you know, everything, everything's pretty good. And, and, you know, God's my friend and everything is great and all this stuff without any fear of the Lord, without any, uh, reverence to this concept, without any confession of even general sinfulness, which is what most of the sacrifices of the sacrificial system were about. That, that there is just a sin-soaked nature, even to the people of God, even in the redeemed state, that the works that we work are still not perfect. And so even good works must be confessed in humility. And so he says in, here in Thesis 8, that so much more are the works of man mortal sins when they are done without fear and an adulterated evil self-security. We don't just live our Christian lives, he's saying, and, and somehow come to this conclusion that all is well and I've got everything covered. And just for a little bit of when I mess up here or there, then, you know, God forgives me. He says that, that's, that's actually the worst way because it is, it is an evil self-security. That's not who you are at all. Uh, you must constantly have a fear of the Lord and not have self-security at all. Uh, with regards, now this is not saying that you cannot be secure in your salvation. No. In fact, he says <clears throat> your security of your salvation does not come by looking at you, it comes by looking to Christ. This is one thing that is absolutely plagued even the Protestant world is trying to pull security from analyzing your life. I mean, you can see whether or not you're in the beloved, that is fine. But by doing so, you must look at confession. You must look at um humility it's not looking at all the good things i have done that that will rob away security faster than anything because the more you analyze the more you realize it wasn't as good as i thought thesis 9 luther says to say that works without christ are dead but not mortal appears to constitute a perilous surrender of the fear of god and here he takes up an issue with something that was going on at the day where the works without Christ are dead, but not mortal. Um, And so it's, it's those who will uh, express this again, this difference between uh, dead works and mortal sins. And he's like, um, they have the same outcome. They kill you. I mean, dead is the state of dead. Mortal is the uh, state before dead. Uh, They all end up at the same place. And so if, if we, if we give up the, or if we say that works without Christ are dead, but they're not mortal, it really does constitute a, a denial of the importance and the centrality of the fear of the Lord. Um, and so the way he uh, logically works it out, he just says that this opens the door to the pride of self, which is perilous and robbing God of his glory. <clears throat> God must be given the glory to him. Right. Thesis 10. Indeed, he said it is very difficult to see how a work can be dead and at the same time not a harmful and mortal sin. Um, again, th- this kind of issue that was floating around at the day was that there are differences between uh, the works of somebody who is dead in sin and the works of somebody who is doing a mortal sin. And uh, Luther points out, he says, Scripture does not speak this way. Mortal and dead, again, both have the same outcomes. And the will of man must either love or hate dead works. Right? To love dead works is to love that which God is not. Life. God is life. To love dead works is not of God. And so he just he draws out that the outcome of it is death, no matter what you call it, dead works or mortal sins, it's it always ends up in the same bath. Thesis eleven. Arrogance cannot be avoided. Or true hope be present, unless the judgment of condemnation is feared in every work. Now, I will simply point out that if this is the first time you've read this, you got to just behold the birth of the Lutheran view of the law's condemnation. Right? That pure hope is found in the full knowledge that all creatures, works, and actions of men are dead, and one's trust is to be in God alone that there is nothing in us that resides. There is nothing in popes that reside. There is nothing in our teachers or our pastors or our deacons or our elders that resides, that gives us pure hope only found in God alone. One's trust is to be in him. There is no person who bears this hope purely, Luther continues on. It stands then that due to to our impurity in all things, We must be fearful of the judgment of God. In other words, we should look at the law and yeah, there should be a fear there because all sins earn death. Absolutely. It is only then when we fear the Lord that we are protected from pride. Think about that for a second. It is only when we fear the Lord that we are protected from pride. It must displease us to have confidence in a creature such as ourselves. In other words, the whole concept of self-righteousness or uh, or of I've got this covered or I got these great works and I can do this and I, 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 I. And Luther will look at this and say, that is the, that is the central and queen of all sins. That is arrogance and pride. In fact, it must displease us to ever put confidence in a creature such as our own selves. Really important thesis. Number 12. In the sight of God, sins are then truly venial when they are feared by men to be mortal. Now, this is a turn of words that plays off of the, um, off of the structure of how this works. And when, uh, when, when Luther puts this out here, he's saying he's actually turning the whole thing on its head. The only way that mortal sins, which as he has already defined as all sins, the only way that mortal sins become venial, become infractions, becomes things that don't bring us to death is when we are fearing them as mortal sins. In other words, if you're looking at a sin and going, Oh, that's not going to kill me. Oh, that's not going to, put me to death. Oh, that's not going to best me. That's when they're going to kill you. Or to quote the later Puritan pastor John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And Luther will say this exact thing here. In the sight of God, sins then are truly venial when they are feared by men to be mortal. The smallest infraction, not even just infractions, the greatest good work I have ever done still must be seen as a mortal sin. This is how Luther is going to display our inability to the law of God. It is not that the law of God is bad. No, we are. It is not that the work of God in us is bad. We are. But just as the law was incomplete without the gospel, so we are incomplete without the full work of God in the world to come. Thesis 13, free will after the fall exists in name only. And as long as it does what it is able to do, it commits a mortal sin. <laughs> now, um, later on, uh, Luther will write a book called The Bondage of the Will, and that is going to be uh, in uh, response to one of Erasmus's books um, called The Freedom of the Will. <laughs> Luther always kind of did stuff like this and luther here writes about this reality of of this concept of free will he says look let's just talk after the fall let's not talk before the fall before the fall it's a different discussion after the fall though free will exists in name only our wills are enslaved to sin he says look the will of man is captive to sin therefore it only does what it wants sin even in our good works It's not that they aren't perfect enough. It's that we are sinful. It's that it doesn't matter how much we do, we cannot produce the righteousness of God. We're not going to be able to produce that. He quotes John 8, verse 34. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Unquote. He quotes Augustine to support this. Free will, this is Augustine's quote here, quote, free will without grace has the power to do nothing but sin. Unquote. And, quote, some call the will free but in fact it is an enslaved will unquote you say well what 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 does this have to do with um with you know the whole background of medieval theology and salvation and so forth a lot this is a full rejection of the roman concept of penitent works that are meritorious notice at the end of all of this What what is going to be the outcome is that on that cycle that we talked about earlier, that cycle of birth and then baptismal regeneration, state of grace. And then that cycle, that treadmill that you're in your whole life, sin, confession, penance, back to state of grace, sin, confession, repentance, back to state of grace, sin, confession, penance, back to state of grace. He says there's a link in the chain that doesn't work and that's penance. Because the whole concept of penance, the whole concept that sits behind indulgences, that whole concept breaks down if we are unable to do meritorious works. That will not be a spiral. It won't even be a cycle. It will just end. And he says, look, from Scripture and onward, we have a problem. If, if we are then required to do works of penance, that will actually bring us back into fellowship or back into this state of grace, put it in those terms. He says, we have a problem. We're not capable of doing such works. Nowhere in scripture are we shown that we actually have that capability. In fact, we are showing that the will of man after the fall is enslaved to sin. In fact, even the works of God that are done through us Are done imperfectly. Why? Because we are still bearing the will of sin. Doesn't mean we can't do good things. It doesn't mean they're not good. We're talking about the nature of the outcome of these things. And at this point in Luther's theology, he is working through these issues and trying to pull apart pieces that express these things. That's number 13. And again, All 28 of these theses are worthy of focus and worthy of reading. I would encourage you to go through uh, the rest of the other 14 that I'm not going to cover here tonight. Um, But I do want to cover the 14th one. And that is number 21. Number 21 is very important. Number 21, thesis number 21 reads, A theology of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theology of the cross, though, calls the thing what it actually is. Now, if you've never heard of the theology of glory versus the theology of the cross, um, this is where it starts. The theology of glory was the medieval uh, argument, at least in the scholastic world. He's saying, look, in arguing for these things that there's penitent measures that you're doing, you're actually calling what is by nature evil works to be good And you're calling things like humility and the fear of the Lord evil. But those are actually the good things. You've got it backwards. Um, I'm actually going to read Luther's explanation of this one straight out for the theology of the cross. He says, this is clear. He who does not know Christ does not know God hidden in suffering. Therefore, he prefers works to suffering, glory to the cross strength instead of weakness, wisdom instead of folly, and in general, good instead of evil. These are the people whom the apostle calls enemies of the cross of Christ in Philippians 3.18. For they hate the cross and suffering and love works and the glory of works. Thus they call the good of the cross evil and the evil of a good uh, of a deed good. Listen here, he says, God can be found only in suffering and the cross, as has already been said. Therefore, the friends of the cross say that the cross is good and works are evil. For through the cross, works are dethroned, and the old Adam, who is especially edified by works, is crucified. He goes on to say it is impossible for a person not to be puffed up by his good works, unless he has first been deflated and destroyed by suffering and evil until he knows that he is worthless and that his works are not his, but God's. Good stuff. The cross, suffering, humility. These are the things that are actually good. A theology of glory that raises up the pompous appearance of supposed pietistic people is a theology of glory. And Luther will draw a distinction between these two. One pursues evil and calls it good, and the other one pursues what is actually good. The theology of the cross will call a thing what it actually is. He says the theology of the cross will call what good works we supposedly have. It will actually point them out to say they are not worthy of our confidence and our confidence rests in the cross and the sufferings of Christ only. His last quote there, as he elucidates, this is it is impossible for a person not to be puffed up by his good works. Unless he has first been deflated and destroyed by suffering and evil. Until he knows that he is worthless and that his works are not his but God's. Prideful Christians that look down on other people's lives are not the pious ones to be looking up to. They are the ones to be avoided. And here, Luther will point out this very reality and express it that a theology of glory will call evil good and good evil, but a theology of the cross calls the thing what it actually is. The Heidelberg Disputation, again, this was a local and regional thing. This was not a, uh, a broad aspect of the church's response to the Reformation or any such thing, but um, once it ended... Again, as I had said before, Martin Bucer writes a letter to his mentor, and he just overwhelmingly is happy about all these things, saying, "You know, this was uh, like the best thing he had ever attended and seen." A lot of people, when they first heard Luther uh, speak, just kind of the almost like a magnet or some something of the sort uh, are drawn to how he talks about these things and um and a lot of people react that way uh not everyone reacts that way um pope leo X um, got wind of luther's clarifications and he enlists the help of a notable theologian in rome uh, who is of the dominican order a man named sylvester mazzolini uh, mazzolini writes the uh, first uh, official theological response to Luther's teaching. Uh, he does this in 1519, um, but before that, he writes a smaller response uh, in the summer of 1518, right after, uh, right after the uh, the Heidelberg Disputation. It was just four theses of response in favor of the infallibility of the Church, concluding that anyone who says that the Church cannot do whatever she does, including indulgences, must be considered a heretic. <laughs> Luther responds pretty quick. Uh, He implores Mazzolini not to make a ridiculous fool of himself. (laughs) That's how Luther writes things. Uh, Mazzolini responded in full measure in 1519, uh, so a little bit less than a year later, with a work titled The Errors and Arguments of Martin Luther, Recited, Exposed, Refuted, and Most Copiously Crushed. (laughs) Um, Here he uh, establishes... uh, uh, in this book, to uh, he establishes to set out to prove that papal decisions and matters of faith and doctrine are inspired, uh, and to reject them is to invite eternal death and um, many other aspects of that. uh pretty interesting thing. Luther's response is to take the whole book, the whole work, and um, write a uh, colorful preface and appendix. Uh, and severely intense notes throughout the margins and published the book itself with all of his markings uh, on it. Um, Luther stated that he was doubtful that Massellini's comments had even had papal approval because he considered them so outlandish, uh, and that actually led to Leo X giving his papal endorsement of that book uh, the very next year in 1520. Um, uh, the errors and arguments of Martin Luther recited, exposed, refuted, most copiously crushed, um, which is probably one of the most amazing titles of a book ever. Um, and so when we're, when we're looking at kind of how this, uh, goes out, when we come to something like Leipzig, uh, the heat is going to be on just a little bit higher than we come to Heidelberg. Heidelberg was a collegiate, you know, uh, almost like an intervarsity varsity discussion of sorts. When we come to 1519, now we're dealing with uh, official debates between the Roman Catholic Church and uh, those who would consider them part of the Lutheran Reformation that is still going on in Saxony. The Leipzig Disputation, this one I'm not going to get into the, the deep details of. I'm just going to kind of walk us through this because it's a far more greater known thing. But I do want to at least expose you to the issues that were at hand. The original plan was that it would be a debate between a man named Johannes Eck and Andreas Kallstadt. Um If you are familiar with Reformation history, both of those names should be familiar to you. Uh, Johannes Eck was in favor of the Roman Catholic Church, obviously a very accomplished debater, a an incredible mind, um, and one that was present at many things, including the Diet of Worms and his, um, his uh, reaction in Augsburg to the ongoing Reformation in the, in the German world uh, was to write 404 theses uh, of response to the Augsburg Confessions. So the guy's mind is uh, really impressive. Uh, there's, no, there's no doubting that. Um, Karlstadt, uh, not so much. Andreas Karlstadt was a professor. Um, uh, he was actually a professor of Luther's in his early days at the University of Wittenberg. Um, and when Luther began uh, the 95 Theses and kind of started down this road, Karlstadt was one of his earliest uh, supporters, but kind of took what Luther said and ran with it um, and didn't really do a lot of the groundwork that is necessary uh, and certainly was not a an accomplished debater on any terminology, regardless of such the original plan was for Eck and Karlstadt to debate significantly over the issue of indulgences, but the evolution of that debate continued on. Uh, And just the same as we saw with, um, with, with Luther's dealings with things when he's coming to Heidelberg, he's not talking about things like indulgences. He's talking about the works of man. He's talking about the, the bondage of the will he's talking about, The theology of the cross and humility and devotion and fear of the Lord. That's the kind of stuff he's talking about now because he's starting to realize that behind the indulgences is a massive issue on the concept of what we're able to even do in penance. Right? Uh, What is our will capable of? What is the divine grace going to do? Uh, And so these are some of the issues that are going to come up. Right? So. In the months leading up to the disputation, the focus of the debate moved from indulgences to the pressing questions, uh, even ultimately rising at things like papal authority and primacy. Well, Luther Luther essentially invites himself to this on some levels, um, and he's also invited on other levels. But um, because of how quickly things were moving along at this point, uh, Luther does take part in this, but so does Karlstadt. So you have Eck that is dealing with multiple issues uh, and multiple uh, places, or excuse me in multiple uh, debates uh, in attendance uh, also quite importantly was a man named Duke George. Uh, he presided over parts of Saxony, including Leipzig, where this disputation was taking place. Uh, he was more than most any other ruler in all of uh, the Holy Roman Empire vehemently against the Reformation. Um, yeah. So I don't think he's gonna hand that out as well as we think. Uh, so let's let's go into this a little bit. The issues here. The first significant issue that is argued and debated over is between Eck and Karstadt, and that is on the nature of free will and its relationship to divine grace. Eck Johanna Eck will actually argue that man's will is was capable of cooperating with the grace of God. And in questioning, Karlstadt was unable to distinguish between the primary and secondary causes of good action. Okay, so let me kind of pull this out, right? Johannes Eck was arguing that we as fallen people, we do have a will that's capable of cooperating with the grace of God. And so I want you to think about this in terms not really of... um, you know, I I said a prayer and became a Christian. I want you to think about it in terms of medieval thinking. I was born, I was baptized, I'm in the church and in a state of grace, and my sin, again, that cycle. I want you to think about it in terms of that, because here he is addressing our will as Christians, because there's no concept of... not Man's will is capable of cooperating with the grace of God. If God says something... Uh, and in grace gives us a commandment to do it that almost necessitates our ability to do it um, Karlstadt on the other hand was uh, trying to establish uh, causes of good things that are done and couldn't really hold up to questioning on on some of the details of that argument and in questioning uh, when Karlstadt turns back and questions Johann Eck Eck was unable to distance himself from the appearance of being a Pelagius um Pelagius was uh the one that uh that Augustine was arguing against, who uh claimed that there was actually no nothing lacking in the will of man. That if God says to do something, it necessitates and assumes the ability of man to do it. And so Eck was not really able to distance himself from the appearance of Pelagianism, uh which was declared to be a heresy. Um and again, you know, Kostad was able to point out that there's an inconsistency between the church of the 16th century and the church of the 5th century. And as an accomplished debater, though, Eck was still able to turn this back on Kostad, who was unable to clarify in the details regarding the actions of divine grace and how exactly that works in the nature of good action. Um, that's not really the central aspect of this. Really, the Leipzig disputation gets into the meat of it uh, when we get into the papacy. uh whether or not it is sourced in the scriptures of the church fathers, um, Luther and Eck will argue this one straight up. Um, and uh, Eck will say, uh, Eck will say that Christ is the head of the heavenly church, the church triumphant, and the Pope is the head of the earthly church, the church militant. And he asked the question of Luther, if, if it is not the Pope that the authority uh, of the papacy rests, then, Uh, And if not in councils, then who? Uh, Eck took a lot of his arguments from scripture and the church fathers, uh, as this was the common ground that he and Luther shared. Both of them had respect for both. And Luther saw a distinct difference between the scriptures and the doctrines of the 16th century church. Again, Eck is trying to harmonize the apparent differences. Luther is saying there's differences because you're doing completely different things. Uh, We're not going to establish the papacy in the scriptures because we don't have any such office there in the scriptures. Eck is going to make some of the arguments based on uh, Matthew 16 and a lot of the arguments that are still used um, in support of uh, this being a continuation of what Peter uh, was given. And he quotes some of the church fathers to this end. Um, And the most important uh, debate as far as for Luther's role here is concerned uh, was on the role of the popes in the early church. Um, This is something that Luther put a lot of effort into preparing. Um, He took the tack of arguing that there was honorary precedence for the Roman bishops, but independence of the Eastern churches as historical and demonstrable fact. He says, look, even today in 1519, the existence of the Eastern Orthodox Church is proving of the exact same thing. They are independent from what Rome is doing, right? He says uh, the same thing was in the early church. The, those churches in Antioch and in Jerusalem and in, um, and in Alexandria, Egypt, were responsible all for their own territories. And he says if any would have primacy, it would have been the Bishop of Jerusalem, which is where these things originated from um you know being the being the first of all the churches he says, and beyond that the Greek bishops are not confirmed by Rome at all uh, and certainly not in the past 500 years. Well X response to some of these arguments is that well first of all, he agreed on that last point he says you know the bishops the Greek bishops are not confirmed by Rome uh, for the last 500 years because they're schematics schismatics and heretics. And he says, anyone who is a legitimate priest, Rome has sovereignty over, (laughs) even if they didn't confirm them. Um, And there was really no defense to be made from the earliest church fathers because they simply don't know anything of this, uh, neither from Scripture. And so actually at that point turned the argument to the post-Great Schism era, so after 1054, uh, to the last 500 years uh, of this Uh, period of history and drawing parallels between the schismatics of the Eastern church and people like Jan Hus. You can see where this is going because as schismatics and as heretics, they remove themselves from the church of Rome in which is the only place to be found salvation. He then parallels not only the schismatics and heretical things that happened to the Eastern church but also to Jan Hus and then parallels it between it and Luther. He says, at the end, Johannes Eck challenged Luther that he was teaching things that were already condemned at the Council of Constance in, you know, back in 14, 14, 1480 when they condemned Jan Hus and burned him to death. Basically, he's, he's expressing back to Luther, he's saying the things that you are bringing up were already condemned by the council, and they're also condemned by the Pope. So if not the Pope and not the Council, who is in charge? Luther was not able to fully respond well to that. Um and in fact, the the technical outcome of this is that Eck actually won the debate. Um and the accusation against Luther was that um, you sound a whole lot like a Hussite. And Luther's response, quite quite notably, as many have uh, quoted him before, is, I am a Hussite. Aligning himself with Jan Hus, who was put to death for, well, from my perspective and from Luther's as well, for teaching the gospel and for criticizing the Roman Catholic Church. And so when he says he is a Hussite, that that has a lot of things uh, follow in the in the uh, foregoing of this. As far as for uh, Eck is concerned, if if you're at this point, you know you are uh, you are already sufficiently to be considered a heretical stance. Uh, it's just a matter of of getting through the issues, um, so uh, so forth. Let's see. Uh, can you ask a question You say, how far do these debates reach beyond the academic world uh, or reach the common person? That is, to what extent would folks like you and me be talking about the debates? So until the Leipzig Disputation, hardly at all because they were done in Latin. But this is the coolest thing ever. Right. So you're asking the question at just the right moment because Luther finishes off the Leipzig Disputation by turning to the crowd gathered and speaking to them in German and and leaving the Latin behind. Because all of these in the official debates had to go on in Latin, and he just basically looks at everyone and, and just speaks to them in their uh, mother tongue. And this was the strength of Luther in some of his responses and why his teaching got so far is that he, he ended up stopping trying to convince academics of this stuff, and he just started writing in German. And the Leipzig Disputation is where that transition happened for Luther because he was seeing that this is not going to go anywhere. The same thing, Ken, that you're recognizing. How far is this going to go? What is this going to affect? So you you technically win a debate, technically don't win a debate. You, you present to a couple doctors of churches or, or of universities, and it all stays, stays in academia. What, what good is that? And Luther looks at that and goes, it really doesn't do any good. And he starts speaking in German at the end of the Leipzig disputation and including everyone in on it, uh, much to the surprise of people uh, present. Uh, But yes, perfect timing on that question Um, uh, that led to people uh, being able to interact with um, with Luther's writings, because from here on out for most of the stuff he writes significantly in German, not in Luther, uh, not in Latin. Uh, And so that that is where this becomes such a huge uh, movement among the people because they can just read this in their own language and that's why he goes and again he translates the new testament and that's in their own language now the average person could just read the scriptures and go wait a second this isn't a matter of difference of interpretation this is just not in here at all um and so anyway great time for that question perfect um uh, so, uh, some of the last things that were talked about here was the authority of the scriptures. For instance, there was uh, smaller discussions on the nature of purgatory, um, you know, which there's only, uh, one verse that can be used and it's from second Maccabees in support of such a thing. And so it led into a discussion about the apocryphal books, um, you know, which, uh, even Eck agreed that no, no, uh, no Hebrew canon ever included the apocryphal books, but uh, the church has since decided that they are uh, and should be uh, accepted. And Luther goes, you know, that's not the way that this works. Uh, the nature of Scripture's authority would be inherent; it's not based on what you decide. It's based on, you know, God who inspired it. Um, uh, there was some discussions on indulgences as well and the nature of penance, but again, these were much smaller issues as far as for how significant the issues of things like the authority and, as Luther will argue, the errors of church councils and popes. At that point, just there's nothing that uh, can be said anymore. This, this actually gets to a dangerous level uh, of where Luther is actually going to be in bodily harm if he continues to stay around and argue these things. Uh, if you're going to say, you know, the pope can err, but the councils um, are, are, uh, are inspired or are infallible. That at least is part of the discussion going on at the day. But if you're going to go, not only is the Pope capable of error, but so are the councils, um, you know, that at that point, you're dealing with different uh, issues of authority. And that's really what Luther is starting to discover is that this is not going to be an in-house debate. This is going to leave, uh, the church some point. And at this point, Luther is still trying to grapple with the reality that what he began in 1517 was a desire to help the church and to even warn, uh, warn the Pope about some of the misdeeds that were happening in the church and even Albert of Mainz and all of these. And he realizes this is not an issue with this preacher, or that preacher, and it's not an issue with indulgences and just penance. This is an issue that is so far beyond And how did he come to these conclusions? Well, he read to the New Testament for the first time. Kind of happens. The outcome is that Luther lost this debate according to its rules. And Eck, a very articulate debater, incredible mind, uh, won the debate. Um, The effects of all of this and the after effects of what happened at Leipzig was that Duke George, who was in attendance there, banned several of Luther's upcoming works. Uh, And they were disallowed to be printed and distributed in Leipzig, uh, including the book uh, by Luther, Freedom of the Christian, uh, also the Babylonian Captivity of the Church. Uh, You can hear in there where he's um, going well past. uh, These are just bad teachings to now he actually uh, likens the Roman Catholic Church to Babylon uh, and saying they're holding the true church captive inside their walls. That is an interesting book to read if you're not familiar with it. And also the banning of Luther's translation of the New Testament when it finally comes out. Um, Side note, by the way, uh, Duke George dies in 1539. And at that point, the people of Leipzig rallied together and invited Luther to preach in the church of St. Thomas. And they sparked the reformation in Leipzig. Um, Could only be resisted for so long that that kind of a movement will go on uh, with or without you. And uh, if it's got to wait for someone to die, it just, it kind of does. Um, I do hope that that dive through these things has been helpful. Um, It is, it is a fascinating time period in history and one that actually lays so many of the groundworks for this transition where Luther is trying to fix the Roman Catholic church to realizing that's not going to be possible. Uh, We actually have to go back and build from scratch in some of these things because we've gotten so far off the beaten path. Well, uh, my thanks to you all for your attention. I know this was a much, uh, a bit of a longer one, but, uh, but I hope it is clarifying. I could not find many, uh, good, uh, backgrounds for an, or sources of information on the Heidelberg disputation. So it required a lot of primary source reading. Um, and, uh, if you want some of those sources or, uh, want to know how to track them down, uh, you're welcome to put a comment here and, uh, ask me, let me know. And uh, I can certainly uh, refer you to uh, the place where you can read these things. But with that, my encouragement to you all, my thanks and gratitude to you all. uh, Let me pass you on the wisdom that I learned from Luther this week in reading all of these things. Let's walk humbly with our God. And let's not ever look at our own works as anything worthy of uh, self-confidence. But instead, let's walk in the fear of the Lord. That's my encouragement to you all this day.